Thank you, ladies. Beautifully done. How many of you like the game Monopoly? I hate it. I hate the game Monopoly. It takes too long. It just gets frustrating. But as a kid, I liked holding all the money as the banker. Any of you like be, who likes being the banker, right? You like holding all that money? Because you were holding $500 bills. And that's not really something that you see outside of Monopoly, right? Holding on to $500 bills. And you know, the game is to try and get as much of that as possible. Our young friends, we're going to be talking about Monopoly, but it's time for you to go to junior church. I'm sorry, I know you're going to be disappointed. We're going to dismiss our friends, grades one through six, to junior church. Someone just said they don't even know what Monopoly is. They're going to have a happier childhood than I did. I remember family relationships being strained over games of Monopoly, trying to get as many of those little plastic houses as you can and the money that comes along with it. And then I want you to think, as much as you try during that hour, two hours, three hours, six hours of playing Monopoly, after trying to get all of that Monopoly money that you possibly could, what was that money worth once the game was over? What was that money worth once the game was over? Absolutely nothing. There was no value to it after the end of the game. And I want you to know that as much as Monopoly money and real money may seem different, they have one thing in common, that after the game is over, they really don't have any value. Jesus Christ said as much about money as he did about heaven, hell, and a number of other topics. And you have to ask yourself the question, why did he do that? For someone that was coming to bring salvation to the world, who was to reveal God the Father to us, the question is, why did he spend so much time on money? Why did he emphasize it? Does God really care about how we manage our money? Because sometimes we get this weird idea that there's a separation between the physical part of our life and the spiritual part of our life. Right? God is only interested in the spiritual part of, of our behavior at times and of our thoughts and perhaps our prayers. And then the physical part of it, some people, even people that believe in God, will leave God out of that part of their life. And as we continue in, on our series on stewardship, on managing what God has given us, we're talking today about not playing games with our money. If God does care how we manage our money, what does he have to say about it? And what is his plan for us? And if he does have a plan for us how to, to use it, we, we ought to know what that plan is. How many of you know that God is all wise? By the way, he is, even if you didn't raise your hand. He is all wise. He knows all things. And if you ever had someone give you wise advice with your money, maybe you followed it and you were very thankful. Or maybe you didn't follow it. And you look back on it now and you say, I wished that I had followed it. All of my roommates... Back in college, it was about 20 years ago, and they were all just messing around with this dumb stuff called Bitcoin. They're just messing around with this dumb stuff called Bitcoin, and they were mining it with their computers. And I'm like, that is dumb. Why are you spending all of that time doing that? And up until recently, when things changed, it, it, Bitcoin was worth quite a bit of money. If someone had recommended that you invest in it at one point in time, you would have perhaps been happy about it. But God gives us this wisdom. Now, people get uncomfortable when the topic of money comes up in church. I won't have you raise your hand if you're uncomfortable. I can already see it. Some preachers get uncomfortable to talk about money. How many of you knew that 
that preachers get. Because we don't want to be associated with some of those charlatans that are out there on TV that are just trying to get you to finance their new $52 million private jet or their $50,000 new Rolex or whatever it is. Uh, some people, they, they, they don't want to be associated with that, and I don't want to be associated with that. But as a pastor, one of the chief things that I have been called to do is to make sure that the day when you meet God is a very good day. So that you don't just get in there broke, you get in there with an abundant entry. And that is going to depend on how you and I live our lives now. <clears throat> Why should we give? And doesn't God own everything? Well, Jesus Christ gives us a foundational principle. We're going to be in two different passages today, but we're going to start in Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, and then we're going to move over to the book of Malachi, which I promise you is actually in the Bible. I did not make that up. In fact, if you're in Matthew, you're going to have a very easy time finding Malachi if you just turn back a little ways into the Old Testament. But the words of the Lord say this. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse number 21. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And then in Malachi chapter 3. How many of you knew as soon as I started talking about money that we would have to be in Malachi chapter 3? Some of you raised your hand before I finished asking that sentence. Malachi chapter 3 and verse number 8. Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you would give us the mind of Christ, that we would love the things that you love, that we would have understanding, that your spirit would guide us into truth. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. As we read in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is speaking to a large group of people that have gathered together in what is commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus turned everything upside down in that. He started telling people how they ought to think and act and speak and behave, and it was very different from how the world was used to acting. It, you're probably not surprised that there is a way that the world, <clears throat> the people outside without God, tend to behave. They leave God out of their decisions and out of their thoughts and their words and their actions. It becomes very selfish, becomes very evil very quickly. And then you have what the Lord Jesus was saying, and they were very much opposed with one another. And he said something about where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And that's the foundational principle before we talk about money. But then we went back into the Old Testament to hear about a time in Israel's history when they were having a lot of trouble for a lot of different reasons. And one of those reasons were they had robbed God. They had robbed God. And that idea sounds preposterous, but we'll look at it here in just a moment because how could you ever rob God? I know that God wants your heart. God wants your heart. He's not that interested in your money, except that your money is connected with your heart. Now, that makes sense, but I always thought it was the other way around. I thought if I love something, I'm going to put my money there. 
right? How many of you think that makes sense? If you love something, you're going to put your money there. Well, we actually read the verse, so you know not to raise your hand. But that's what I would think, right? If I really liked somebody, I would give them money. Or if I really liked a cause, I would give them money. But Jesus understood the heart of man. And he said here that wherever your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So instead of your heart deciding the way and the treasure following, the treasure actually follows the way and your heart follows. That doesn't seem to make sense, but it does if you think about it. If you think about that for a little while, imagine that you're an investor. Imagine that you're an investor and Pastor Steve is opening an ice cream shop and I'm opening an ice cream shop. They're going to be competing ice cream shops and you invest $10,000 in Pastor Steve's ice cream shop to get it off the ground and you don't invest any money in mine because you have a secret suspicion that I will eat all the ice cream and make very little profit. You would be right. Which one of our two businesses are you going to check up on? Which one of our two businesses are you going to be more mindful when it comes time for you to choose which one of our two ice cream shops to go to, where are you going to go? Well, if you're honest, you're probably going to Pastor Steve's ice cream shop. Why? Because you've made an investment there. You've made an investment there. And so we see that this is not something that's just that far out. And Jesus says that whatever I spend my money on is what I will come to love. So if I devote my treasure, if I devote my treasure to the world, I will love the things of the world. Remember, we're talking about that part of the world, that system that leaves God out of it and is manipulated by the enemy. And so if I spend things on this world, perhaps on pleasure, on comfort, on making myself look good, look better, amassing more, having more possessions, he says, I will come to love the world. But if I spend my treasure on God, if I devote my treasure to God, I'll end up loving God. And you say, well, that's interesting, but can I do both? Can't we do some of each? There's a danger with that. It doesn't seem like it would be a danger, but there is. If you have uh, your Bible handy, turn to 1 John, would you? 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. We're warned about where to put our love. And as we've already said, our treasure is going to decide where we put our love in much of our lives. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. What we're told is two very important things here. That if you love God, you cannot love this world. Not that you can't love the people in it. God loves the people of this world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But this isn't talking about people. This is talking about the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes. All of the things in this world that call to that part of us that wants to sin and pulls us towards temptation. If we begin to love the world and those things that are in the world, there's no room for love of God there. It crowds it out. In the same way, if we love God, it crowds out the world. It also tells us that if we put our treasure in the things of this world, it's a bad investment. Would you put your money in an investment in a business that you knew was going to close? No, probably not a good plan. 
here we find that this world is fading away. It passeth away. It's not going to be here forever. This is a temporary place. It seems like a long period of time. It seems, especially if you're young, you have the idea that you're going to live here a long time. But how many of you have lived a few years and you realize it goes very quickly? Right? You understand that things go very quickly. And I promise you, in light of eternity, this is very, very short. Very, very short. I know you can think back to days when you were a kid in school and it was the last hour of the last day of school before summer break and it went forever, didn't it? You looked at the clock and only a minute had passed. You're actually watching that little red hand as it ticks from second to second to second and it felt like forever, but now that you're past that, doesn't that seem like it was a moment? You probably haven't even thought about that moment. That's what our life will be, and so we need to be so careful that we do not put our heart on things that are passing away. How do we protect our heart from putting it on things that pass away? It has to do with where we put our treasure. God wants our heart, and we cannot do both. In fact, Jesus says in just a few passages after where we were in Matthew, if you'll turn back there, in Matthew 6.24, he says in Matthew 6.24, the answer to the question of can't we do both is no. We can't do both. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. And by mammon here, he was talking about money. He was talking about treasure. Money makes a good tool, but a terrible master. That's a topic for a different time. So we looked back in Malachi at the ridiculous idea of somebody robbing God. <clears throat> Why is it so ridiculous to think that somebody could rob God? First of all, who could overpower God in order to take his stuff? No one. And then it's God. Of all the people that you could rob from, God is the kindest, most generous being that has ever existed. And so why would anyone choose to rob him? Right? This isn't some Robin Hood idea that you're robbing from the rich, evil person to give to the poor. This is robbing from our God. And he says in Malachi chapter 3, in verse number 8, will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. That's a rhetorical question, by the way, because the answer ought to be no. A man would not rob God. And he said, yet, yet, even though you say it ought not happen, it has happened. And he plays out this conversation like they would ask and say, well, how have we robbed you? Wherein have we robbed thee? And the answer that he gives is tithes and offerings. You say, what is that? Well, in the Old Testament, God's people practiced something often that was called tithing. Before the giving of Moses' law, during the giving of Moses' law, after the completion of the law, as the Lord Jesus Christ came, there was the idea of tithing. What it is, is a giving of 10% of your increase. Now, if you're in Bible times, that looked like the harvest when you brought it in, the first fruits, the freshest, what you took first, not what was left over, you would gather it up. So what do we grow here in Ohio? Corn and, and soybeans, right? And beans, right? Corn and beans. So imagine that you farmed corn. You would gather in your harvest when the time came and that you would take a tenth of that. That's literally what the word tithe means is a tenth. You would gather that and then you would bring it to God's house. 
or you would bring it to God's man, depending on the time frame in which you were practicing it, whether there was already a tabernacle or a temple, and you would bring it in and you'd give it, and it would be given to the Lord. And, and depending on what it is, it might be used if it was perhaps livestock right there in the, in the carrying on of the sacrifices, or it may be exchanged or given to the, the people that ran God's house or did God's work. And so it would be given unto the Lord. It belongs to the Lord. And so today, uh, I don't know if you grow crops. I don't know if you, if you do that, but we, um, we have chickens. And for a long time, we would tithe off of our chickens to Pastor Jenkins. I know that sounds weird, but my wife and I would set aside uh, uh, the, uh, the 10 eggs that would come in, and we would, or the 12, excuse me, the 12 eggs that would come in, uh, and we would, we would hand those off. To, and, and I think, Pastor Steve, if you've gotten some of our eggs before in the past and we've given them to other people, and, but that, that is primarily not how we tithe today. How many of you are paid in livestock? How many of you, your increase comes in soybeans, right? Or, or in sheep or something like that. That is not how we do things. And today, it comes in the form of money. And so the idea is that if they had it in money or in livestock, they would take that 10% of it and they would bring it to the Lord. And if they wanted to give over and above that, an offering, something willful that they wanted to give on their own in order to further God's work even more, to worship God even more, they would give that on top of it. And this was a practice in the nation of Israel. God laid it out in habit before the law, in code during the law, and he told his people to do it. And guess what happened? They stopped doing it. They stopped doing it. And I don't know exactly what the individual reasons were. There were lots of troubles in the nation and there were lots of problems that went on during the time of Malachi. But it said here that you have robbed me in tithes and offerings, meaning that the tithe belongs to the Lord. You can't steal something from someone if it doesn't belong to them. And so oftentimes, when we say that the tithe belongs to the Lord, we have to say the flip side of that is the tithe does not belong to us. The tithe does not belong to us. And when you take something that doesn't belong to you, there's a fancy word for that called stealing, stealing right? Verse number nine, ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Why were things going so poorly? Next week, we're going to look in, a, in the book of Haggai. If you've never looked in that book before, there's some things in there about how everything kept going wrong in their lives. And they said, it's just not time to work on God's house. It's just not time to give. It's not time to do that. We're having so much trouble. It's like we keep getting food and it's not enough. And, and we keep paying our bills and getting money, but it's not enough. Any of you feel like that, by the way, right now? Right? Doesn't it seem like no money is enough right now when you go to the grocery store or when your bills come in? Uh, any of you get a, a lovely electric bill for your last period? Any of you get something crazy, right? And you seem like there's just not enough. And what he's saying here is the reason that there's not enough, the reason that you're cursed with a curse, which is a, an interesting way of hearing, an interesting way of hearing, that he's saying you are experiencing great hardship because you have neglected God. The way of the transgressor is hard. And so when you're not doing right, it becomes resisted by the Lord. And so he's saying, Israel, this is why you're having so much trouble. This is why you're experiencing a curse. And he says, the whole nation, everybody that wasn't participating in what they ought to have been was experiencing hardship. 
It didn't matter if they had been the most faithful person to the temple or not. It didn't matter if they volunteered all of their time or if they were very good in other areas. It said if you were not giving, you were experiencing this curse, even this whole nation. Even this whole nation. Well, it continues on in verse number 10. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now, herewith saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. That there shall not be room enough to receive it. He said, I want you to know that you can test me on this. God doesn't say that often, but he says it here. He says, you can, you can prove it. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to bring the tithe into the storehouse. It was brought directly to the man of God, as we see with Abraham and Melchizedek. It was brought into the tabernacle when they had the tabernacle, the temple when they have the temple. Wherever it is that God's people were doing God's work and that there was a need to fund that, that's where they ended up bringing in the money. And the same call comes today to bring in the tithes to the storehouse. That's the place where they would store the things, whether it was a granary and things like that, in order to gather in. Because remember, they weren't just bringing coins. You would show up at church with a bunch of chickens, right? I want you to think about that for a second. What would we do if, if people showed up with a bunch of chickens and said, this is the tithe off of my flock, right? How many of you could prepare a chicken? How many of you could prepare a chicken like that? All right, well, Freddie, you need to enlist some people if that ever happens. We don't have a committee for that. I want you to know we're not prepared. But that's what they would do, and they would bring it. And he says, here's what I want you to bring the tithe. I want you to change what it is that you have been doing and I want you to bring it into the storehouse so that there may be meat in mine house. In other words, so that there might be what's necessary to take care of the priests in that time, or the, the men of God, and to continue on the work of the ministry. He says, I want you to do that. And it's, it's for everybody. We said the whole nation experienced the problem. I want you to know, and some people are always curious about this, does the pastor tithe? And the answer is yes. Absolutely. Do you know why? Because the tithe belongs to the Lord, not the church. Oftentimes, my daughter will ask me, Daddy, who's the boss of the church? And I, well, yeah, she, that is the daughter, and she also might be the boss of the church. I'm not sure. But she says, Daddy, who, who's the boss of the church? And I said, well, the church belongs to Jesus. And she's like, no, 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 no. Who, who's, in, who's in charge of the church? Well, I said, I make a lot of decisions, but the people are in charge of the church. The congregation gets together and they, they vote on things that are very important. And she's trying to figure out, she's like, so do you own the church? And I'm like, I do not own the church. I do not own the church. You know why? Because the church belongs to the Lord and the tithe belongs to the Lord. And honestly, this 10% idea, this tithing idea, it didn't start with man, it started with God. You say, I don't like that number. Well, I didn't pick it out. Some people say, well, I'm only tithing 3% right now. That's like saying that you've got a square, but it's only got three sides. It's not really a square anymore, is it? Right? In the same way, a tithe is, is 10%. And he says, here, prove me, test me. He's like, do it. I know you think you can't. I know you're waiting for a different time. I know you're waiting for things to be easier, for there to be more money. Have any of you ever gotten there, by the way? I, have things ever gotten that much easier when it comes to finances? If it does, let me know when that happens. 
But it says, prove me now herewith, saith the Lord, back in verse number 10, saith the Lord of hosts. He calls himself the Lord of hosts as a little reminder of how great he is. You know what that term means? The Lord who keeps his promises, who's in charge of all the armies of heaven. That's what the hosts are. This is the, the Lord of the armies of heaven. He says, all of the angels, all of the power is at my command. Just remember who it is that's saying, prove me, test me. This isn't some shady guy in a back alley trying to say, hey, this is a good investment. This is the Lord of hosts who's saying this. And he says in verse number 10, prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. So he says, this is what happens. If you bring the tithe, that's already mine, by the way, if you stop robbing me and you bring it to God's house so that God's work can go forward and so that God can be worshiped in it, if you do that, I will pour you out a blessing that is reminiscent of when God flooded the earth with the global flood. That windows of heaven idea is very reminiscent of when God opened the windows of heaven and the earth was flooded in the days of Noah. And that wasn't a small flood. That wasn't a four-foot flood. That was at least 17,000 feet above sea level because the ark landed on a mountain that's at least 17,000 feet above sea level at this time. So we understand that that was a global thing. And when he says, I'll give you such a blessing that you won't have a place to put it. Now, is God's blessing always money? No. Oftentimes it's better than money. There are many things that money cannot buy. There are many things that money cannot buy. He says in verse number 11, and I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. We don't farm like they used to farm, but almost everybody was raising something. They were involved in some sort of agriculture, whether it was plants, whether it was animals, that was a common thing. And he says, here's what I'm going to do for you. The, the hardships that you face, you can personify it as the devourer. Some people say that this, this might be Satan working against God's people, making their livelihood. He says, a devourer that seems to eat up your crops, that seems to, to hurt your animals, I'm going to stop it. And I'm going to rebuke the devourer for your sakes. He says, I'm going, your fruits will not be destroyed and your vine won't cast its fruit early. How much money can you pay to keep your crops from dropping their fruit early before they're ripe? How much money can you pay to make sure that a storm doesn't come and destroy your area with a flood? How much money can you pay in order to keep a tornado from ripping through your fields or a disease from destroying your herd of livestock? How much money does that take? The answer is no amount of money could do that, and certainly your 10% couldn't do that. He's saying, I will pour you out a blessing that sometimes is measured in finances, but it oftentimes is so much better than that. Whether it's protection, whether it's peace and strength, whether it's just things lasting longer than they ought to. Have you ever experienced that, children of God? Right? Have you ever, you ever experienced something lasting longer than it ought to? What, what was that? That was the Lord. I have to tell you, God has provided for our needs admirably. If you knew what we lived on when we first got married, and some of you had that experience, it was only God that we had a place to live and food to eat. Right? God provided. He provided abundantly. And so we're shown here that it's not just the Old Testament, but it's also in the New Testament. Would you look at Luke 6, 38? 
Jesus talks once again about generosity. He says, give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For men shall give into your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet withal, it shall be measured to you again. I don't know when you're supposed to push the sugar down into the measuring cup, or push the flour, excuse me, down into the measuring cup, or when you're supposed to let it just sit normally. I don't know when that happens, but I want you to imagine that, that someone is putting sugar, or excuse me, flour into a jar. And there's, uh, you say, I want a jar of flour. Well, you could just get the jar of flour where they put it in nice and loose and it goes up to the top and you say, you've got a full jar. And there, the picture here is, no, imagine if somebody pushed it down and then put more in and pushed it down and put more in and pushed it down to where it couldn't go down anymore and they put another scoop on top of it anyway and it's running down over the sides of your container. That's the kind of generosity that God desires to bless us with. That, that's what he wants. He says, if you give... Whatever standard that you use to give, either being generous or being stingy, that's what you get in return. This is a specialized version of the law of sowing and reaping. Long before karma ever ever existed, and people came up with that idea because they noticed that it was true, is the idea of sowing and reaping. Whatever you put into the ground is exactly what you're going to get back. You sow generosity, you reap generosity. You sow stinginess, you reap stinginess. You sow kindness, you reap kindness. You don't just get what you sow, you get more than what you sow. You don't just put a kernel of corn in the ground and get a kernel back. You get a whole stalk with perhaps many ears of corn back. And that's, that's the idea here. And I understand that there are some people who would say that um, they don't believe in tithing, that that's an Old Testament thing and it's not for New Testament times. And I would say be very careful of just making that cutoff there because murder is also an Old Testament thing that was not practiced. They said you couldn't murder, and that's continued on today. The same thing with adultery with a number of things. So before we just, we just remove that, let's make sure that we hear what the scriptures have to say. He says if you're generous, you'll receive generosity. And you know what? It's easy to be generous with monopoly money. Isn't it easy to be generous with monopoly money? You say, why is it easy? Because it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. What we hold, what we hold in our hands is, is really not much more than monopoly money. Because when this life is over, if we've left this here, if we haven't sent it on ahead by investing in eternity, by using it to bless others, then it really doesn't have any value. Pharaohs were buried with their favorite servants, pets, wives, concubines, and mountains of treasure so that they could, and they, they didn't all even have to be dead. They would kill them and bury them with the Pharaoh when he passed in ancient Egypt. And in his treasure hoard, they would pile riches in so that he could take them with him into the afterlife. Do you know who got to take those? It wasn't the Pharaoh that died. It was the grave robbers. It was the archaeologists because you can't take it with you. But you can send it on ahead by investing it in God's work and seeing souls saved. What do we take away specifically from this? If you're in the habit of writing things down, here's our three points of application today. The first thing is we need to come to terms with God's instructions on tithing. 
We need to come to terms with God's instructions on timing. Lots of people have lots of ideas, but what does God say? And remember who God is, by the way. He's the God that loves you. He's the God who provides for you. He is the God who sent his own son to die on the cross for you, to die a death that we should have died, to pay for penalties that we should have paid, and yet Jesus did it. You see, our sin separated us from God. That simply means when God said, don't do the bad things, we did it anyway. And when God says, do the good things, we couldn't be bothered with that. That simply is sin. And because of that, we couldn't be allowed into heaven. Only perfect people are allowed into heaven. And if you're not perfect, then you need the perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need his record replacing your own record, his permanent record placing your record, his spiritual bank account replacing yours. And that's why the Lord Jesus came. He became sin for us. He took that hit instead of you taking that hit. And he, he became sin for us who knew no sin. Jesus had no sin of his own. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He didn't just forgive our sin. All of the riches of the Lord Jesus Christ were placed on our account. So that when you and I die in this life and stand before the Lord, we won't be judged on our record, we'll be judged on him. And he'll see the sinlessness the blessedness of his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you and I will be welcomed in. The question is whether or not we'll be welcomed in to an abundant entry or to the entry of a pauper. Oh, you'll make it to heaven. But there's rewards to be had in heaven. You say, I don't serve God for rewards. That seems cheap. Jesus seemed to think rewards were important. And he talked about them. We have to come to terms with what the Lord says about it. He has a plan for your money. And it's different than what the world would say. The world would say, use your money for yourself to make yourself as secure and comfortable and as admirable as possible. Use it so that you look good and you smell good. You should probably smell good. That doesn't take a lot of money. That you should look good, that you should have everybody envying you. You should flash it around. You should have the comforts that you want. And is it wrong to have money? Is it wrong to be rich? Does anybody know? Is it wrong to be rich? No, it's not. In fact, many times, especially in the Old Testament, a sign of God's blessing was wealth on somebody. So it's not always wrong, but what's sad is that when money becomes someone's God, that is a sad thing. When someone loves it, when you love money, it's the root of all evil. You can trace that back to people loving money more than loving God. God says to bring the tithe. He says to bring the tithe. In fact, Jesus endorsed tithing. You may say, when did Jesus ever talk about tithing? Well, look in Matthew 23, would you? Let me set the scene for you as you turn there. Jesus was dealing with some religious hypocrites, and they were the ones that were always giving Jesus a hard time. They looked really good to everybody else, but Jesus knew what was in their hearts, and we could tell that there was something crooked, there was something corrupt. They were hypocrites. They would talk about God, and then they would not do what they said. They'd say that they loved God, but they really didn't in their hearts. They were close to God with their lips, but far from him in their hearts. And Jesus is rebuking them. He's correcting them publicly as he says these words in Matthew 23, in verse number 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. 
These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Notice that last part. So here's what was happening. They were making sure to tithe off of everything. These religious people were making sure to tithe off of everything. They had some plants that grew for herbs for their herb garden to they can cook with, and they would make sure to tithe off of the mint and off of the anise, right? The cumin, so that they're, they're, you, they make sure to, to bring that to God. Look how good we are. And Jesus was saying, what about judgment and mercy and true faith? You guys didn't do that. You kept all this little minuscule stuff, but you didn't do the main stuff. And Jesus' rebuke said, you ought to have done these things that are weightier matters of the law and also to have done the tithe. You shouldn't have left that undone. That's true. You should have done that too. But there was some really important stuff that you forgot. So he's saying here that both of these things ought to be done. And so he was saying what they did with the tithe was good but that there were other things to it as well. Other things to it as well. You say, I'm still not convinced about the tithing and I believe in grace giving. Then I say that gratitude demands at least 10%. Because if an Old Testament Jew was required to bring 10% under the law, who didn't have a complete Bible, who didn't have the Spirit of God dwelling within him, who didn't already understand who the Savior was and all that he's done, if he can give 10% in a time and in a way and in a place when they lived far less comfortable lives than we do, then how could we do any less? There are some people that genuinely are worried about biblical accuracy and they think that tithing is something that is not for all ages. And, and I applaud you for loving the Bible and wanting to rightly decide it. But then there are also people who talk about grace giving because they just plain old don't want to give 10%. They want to give something less. That is using guile. And God sees through that. You say, the church must really want our money. No, God really wants your heart. This is the pattern that God has set up. And so we need to come to terms with what the Lord says on tithing. The second thing is just to act on it, and it's to give 10% of your income to God. When you increase, you give. And that seems like a lot, but remember, God owns everything. And he says, you bring me 10%, you get to keep the 90%. You say, well, what did God do for that? I worked for that. What did God do for that? Who gave you the ability to work? There are people bedridden right now that can't go to work. Who gave you the mind to be sharp enough to do what it is you do? Who gave you the opportunity? You're telling me there aren't people equally as talented as you out there that just didn't have the opportunity that you have, and so they're not as gainfully employed as you are? Who, who makes sure that, that we have the, the family situation where we can work? God organizes and orchestrates all of these bits and pieces to take care of us. And he tells us to bring the tithe. And it should be the first thing that we bring. I was asked about this just um, Friday night. Somebody asked me and said, should I tithe before or after my taxes? Should I tithe before or after my taxes? And I responded to them. I said, who should you pay first, God or Caesar? That's how somebody said it to me one time, and I didn't like that. Because I, I was paying Caesar first and then God, right? So it should be before your taxes, before you pay the government, I think we ought to pay God. How many of you think that God is greater than the government? Anybody think that God is greater? I think God's greater than the government. Praise God. 
Government doesn't seem to be good at doing hardly anything. And God is so great. So we ought to look at what it is that we're given. And you say, well, I don't like paying both of those things. Me neither. But I'm certainly not going to cheap out on God just because I don't like the amount of taxes that I pay. Give 10% of your income. You say, ends don't meet. Things are hard. We've got more bills and we've got more problems and the car needs fixed and the water heater's about to go and we need to put a roof on and insurance and food has gone up and gas is crazy and all these things. We're having all of this trouble. I can't afford to give. Did you ever think that you're having all that trouble because you aren't giving? You ever feel like, man, I'm just cursed. Well, Never feels like you put money into a bag that's got holes in the bottom of it and it just falls right out. I remember I had a coat, a long coat for winter, and it had holes in the pockets, and I didn't realize it, but the hem was sewn shut, and so I'd put money in my pocket, and it would slink down into the lining of the coat, and I could never get it again. (laughs) Sometimes it feels like that. You're putting stuff in there, and it's not, what's going on? We're experiencing what it's like to disobey God and to have him get our attention about it. We're experiencing what it's like to disobey God and to have him get our attention about it. God loves you too much, believer, to just let you sit there in your disobedience and deal with the hardship of it. He's going to get your attention because he doesn't want you there. You've done this before with your own children or grandchildren or nieces or nephews or grandnieces or grandnephews. You've said that. You've, you've gotten their attention because what they were doing was dangerous, Right? They're about to put their hand on the stove and you yell at them and you maybe grab their hand away. How dare you yell at me? How dare you grab my hand away? Well, you were about to put it on a hot stove. I kind of was doing that on your benefit. In the same way, you may be experiencing that pushback. It could very well be connected to this. Prove me. Prove me, he says. That's the last part. Give generously as unto the Lord. Give generously as unto the Lord. You and I are never more like God than when we're giving. God is a gracious, giving God. And he's been so good to us. Why should we give? Out of of gratitude, out of worship. Because he's worthy, I will obey his word. Because he's worthy, I will bring the tithe. Because of what he's done for me, I will do it. And as God is generous, I seek to be generous. You say, is, is 10% like when you, when you finally reach 10%, is that like the pinnacle? And now you've got your, your grade A. I want you to know that is the starting place for giving. That is the starting place for giving. As God has been generous with us, we ought to be generous as well. And so when we give above and beyond the tithe in order to fund things like God's missionary work around the world or disaster relief efforts, Or even just in the name of Jesus, helping somebody in our community that needs it. Whether it's with groceries or with bills, we do those things. We do those things. And so we know that it's going through the church, yes. You say, I'm not really tithing to God. You say, I give the money to God. What do I have to do? Do I have to go up to heaven and drop it off? Do I have to cut a check or Venmo God? Right? Is that that how that happens? No, we understand that you're, you're giving it to the church. But people have always done this. They've given it to God's man, wherever he is, off by himself, like Melchizedek, in a tabernacle, in a temple, or today, in the house of God, in order to give it to God for God's work. You say, I I give 10% to the church. You give something far greater than that, if that's you. You give 10% to God. And he sees that. He sees that. Regardless of how the church spends it, as soon as you give it, 
And that act of worship, that is something that you have laid up as treasure in heaven. That is something you've laid up as treasure in heaven. If you're here today and you're not a believer, I want you to know that this is something that is primarily uh, a sermon for believers, but I hope you've learned something from it. You you probably have looked around the room, if you're not a believer, and you saw two different types of people in here this morning. You saw some people that were smiling because they have learned the secret of God's blessing when you give. And then you saw some other people around here that didn't look so happy that they were here this morning. And that if they had read their emails and they knew that I was talking about tithing, they may not have shown up because they're not doing it. I want you to know that God is much more interested in your heart than your money, friend. If you're not a believer, the most important thing that you can do today is to trust Christ as your Savior, to have that beginning of your relationship with God. It's not about joining this church. It's not about joining any church. It's not about getting baptized or christened, confirmed, catechized, or any other eyes that you can think of. It's about simply by faith praying and asking the Lord to forgive your sins, believing that he died for you and rose from the grave. And if you never give a single cent to God and his work, if you've trusted Christ as Savior, when your life is over, you will be welcomed into heaven because of all of the riches of Jesus will be placed on your account. And his purity, as he became sin for us, will wipe away your sin. Today, you can trust the Lord. You can can pray to receive him. In just a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation where people will stand and sing. Some may come to pray. Some may pray right there in their seats. But if you've never trusted him as Savior, today is the day to get that settled. I'll be down here at the head of this aisle. You're more than welcome to come and let me know and say, Pastor, I'm not sure I'm saved. I'm not sure I'm saved, but I'd like to know. And someone will take you aside privately, a gentleman with a gentleman, a lady with a lady, and they'll show you from God's word how you can know without a shadow of a doubt that heaven is your home and that your sins are forgiven. I want you to know that I have seen some things in God's generosity to me and my family. How many of you have seen some things? Any of you you ever had that happen? I mean, we have seen some of the the most, and you think it's only going to be big things, but sometimes it's the little things. Um... (laughs) Groceries run tight at times, especially with the cost of everything. And you think to yourself, well, we're going to have to cut back, and we're going to have to have this instead of this, and this instead of this. And, and I just want to tell you, it's so, it's so funny. We went to a, a, a fundraiser, and somebody won, somebody won a big old thing of breakfast meat that was being raffled away. By the way, brilliant idea for a a fundraiser to give away bacon and sausage and ham steaks and all this stuff. Very smart people. And somebody, they, they said, I want, I want you to have this. They had no idea. They had no idea. But they just made sure that we had that. And, and, and that was the one thing. It's so funny because that was the one thing. We've got food for this and this and this, but we're going to be a little bit skimping on. Uh, and, and God just... Isn't that something? It doesn't always have to be a car that he gives you. Though if he does, praise him for it. It doesn't always have to be in a house. He takes care of us in the little things. And I I can't explain to you how many times I've proved God and he has shown himself faithful. That we've tested him and we say, I don't know how it's going to work. 
Honestly, there's some, I don't know how it works, but it does. There's some months that the money just doesn't seem like it ought to add up, and it does. You say, is that real? It's real, and it can be real for you. You may be having so much trouble with your finances because you're kicking against the pricks, as the Bible says. You're pushing back and, and hurting yourself in the process. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. Improve me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes for a moment? In our church, we have what we call a time of invitation. I alluded to it earlier. It's where we invite you to act on what it is that God is speaking to you about. And I don't know what the Lord is speaking to you about, but whatever it is, I want you to say yes to him this morning. I'm not the Lord, but you may have felt, you may have sensed in your own heart during the preaching of his word this morning, you may have felt God point something out to you. Maybe it was something joyful where you could rejoice with a smile on your face because you, you give to the Lord. Or maybe you wished I would shut up. You wish that I would be quiet and it's your money and how dare I tell you what to do with your money. I want you to know, friend, if you felt that this morning, that was not me that you were upset with. That was the Spirit of God pointing something out in your life that was not pleasing to Him. I don't care if you tithe or not this morning if you're not a believer. If you're a believer... I'm very concerned as to whether or not you're following the Lord because I don't want you to walk out of the pathway of blessing. I want you to stay right in that straight way so that God can bless and protect so he doesn't have to guide you back in with perhaps more forceful ways. My desire is for you to have an abundant entry into heaven. I don't know who tithes what. I don't look. I really don't. I don't have any idea who tithes what. And I haven't since I began working here. So it's not about that. But the Lord knows. He wants the best for you, and so do I. If you've been disobedient to him in the area of tithing, I want you to commit to do the right thing. I want you to commit to do the right thing today, to trust him that he'll take care of you. You say, I don't see how it's going to work. Look at how big God is. He is the Lord of hosts. You don't think he can take care of you? Trust him. Put yourself in him. Walk out on that limb. Do it. And see God meet you. Perhaps you've never followed the Lord in believer's baptism or you'd like to put your life and influence in this church as a member. Whatever it is that God has spoken to you about this morning, would you say yes to him? Father, we commit this time to you and this working in our hearts. For those of us that are battling and struggling with what your word has said, for those of us that are wrestling with faithlessness, may you give the victory. If there's any here that don't know you as Savior, may they come and see your, your goodness firsthand. I pray that you would be glorified in how your children obey you in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, shall we?